0: 32, e. After the thirtieth year, unless it has been imperfectly cured, both tonsils are generally, though unequally enlarged, a person affected with this disease is extremely liable to sore throat, and contracts it on the slightest exposure, the contraction of a cold, suppression of perspiration, or derangement of the digestive apparatus being sufficient to provoke inflammation, causes, repeated attacks of quinsy, scarlet fever, diphtheria, or scrofula, and general impairment of the system, predispose the individual to this disease. Symptoms The voice is often husky, nasal or guttural, and disagreeable. When the patient sleeps, a low moaning is heard, accompanied with snoring and stentorian breathing, and the head is thrown back so as to bring the mouth on a line with the windpipe, and thus facilitate the ingress of air into the lungs. When the affection becomes serious it interferes with breathing and swallowing. The chest is liable to become flattened in front and arched behind, in consequence of the difficulty of respiration, thus predisposing the patient to pulmonary disease. On looking into the throat, the enlarged tonsils may be seen, as in the figure 17, sometimes they are so greatly increased in size that they touch each other. Treatment. The indications to be carried out in the cure of this malady are, 1. To remedy the constitutional derangement. 2. To remove the enlargement of the tonsilar glands, the successful fulfillment of the first indication may be readily accomplished by attention to hygiene, diet, clothing, and the use of Dr. Pierce's golden medical discovery. Together with small daily doses of his pleasant pellets, this treatment should be persevered in for a considerable length of time after the enlargement has disappeared. To prevent a return, to fulfill the second indication, astringent gargles may be used, Infusions of which hazel or cranesbill should be used during the day. The following mixture is unsurpassed, iodine, 1 dram; iodide of potash, 4 drams; pure, soft water, 2 ounces. Apply this preparation to the enlarged tonsils twice a day, with a probing, or soft swab, being careful to paint them each time. A persevering use of these remedies, both internal and local, is necessary to reduce and restore the parts to a healthy condition sometimes the enlarged tonsils undergo calcareous degeneration in this case nothing but their removal by a surgical operation is effectual this can be readily accomplished by any competent surgeon we have operated in a large number of cases and have never met with my unfavorable results the method we adopt at the invalids hotel and surgical Institute for the removal of diseased tonsils island like other minor operations painless the patient is not required to take chloroform or ether When the enlarged gland is once thoroughly removed the disease seldom returns. Elongation of the uvula, chronic enlargement, or elongation of the uvula or soft palate, as shown at in Figure 17, may arise from the same causes as enlargement of the tonsils. It subjects the individual to a great deal of annoyance by dropping into or irritating the throat. It causes tickling and frequent desire to clear the throat. Also change, weakness and loss of voice and often gives rise to a very persistent and aggravating cough constriction of the throat cough and difficult breathing are more prominent symptoms in complicated cases treatment the treatment already laid down for enlarged tonsils with which affection elongation of the uvula is so often associated is generally effectual when it has existed for a long time and does not yield to this treatment it may be removed by any competent surgeon chronic laryngitis this is of much more frequent occurrence than the acute form, and is often associated with tubercular affections, and constitutional syphilis. It is characterized by an inflammatory condition, ulceration, or hardening of the mucous membrane of the larynx, most frequently the latter. There is also a chronic form, known as follicular laryngitis, or clergyman's sore throat, to which public speakers are subject. The causes of chronic laryngitis are various as prolonged use of the vocal organs in reading or speaking, using them too long on one pitch or key, without regard to their modulation, improper treatment of acute diseases of the throat, neglected nasal catarrh, the inordinate use of mercury, syphilis, repeated colds which directly cause sore throat, injuries, etc. It is also frequently due to tubercular deposits, and in these cases it generally terminates in consumption. Symptoms. The affection often comes on insidiously. There is soreness of the throat, noticeable particularly when speaking, and immediately thereafter, a raw and constricted feeling, leading to frequent attempts to clear the throat, in order to relieve the uneasy sensation, the voice becomes altered, hoarse, and husky, and there is a slight, peculiar cough, with but little expectoration, at first, the matter expectorated is mucus, but as the disease advances, and ulceration progresses, it becomes mucopurulent, perhaps lumpy, bloody, or is almost wholly pure pus, the voice becomes more and more impaired, and is finally lost, in the latter stages, it resembles consumption, being attended with hectic fever, night sweats, emaciation, cough, profuse expectoration, and sometimes hemorrhage, treatment, the patient should avoid using his voice as much as possible, at the same time, attention should be paid to the diet, the bathing, and the clothing, Everything should be done that is calculated to build up and improve the general health. Dr. Pierce's golden medical discovery is well adapted to remove morbid states of the disease. In consequence of its direct action on the mucous membranes of the air passages, and its efficacy in allaying irritation of the laryngeal, pharyngeal, and pneumogastric nerves, it should be perseveringly employed. Iodine inhalations, administered with the pocket inhaler, illustrated by Figure 3 and the application of tincture of iodine to the forepart of the neck, are efficacious in many cases, inhalations of chloride of ammonia, administered with a steam atomizer, figure 11, in the form of spray, are frequently of great benefit, perseverance is necessary, and the afflicted are cautioned against discontinuing the treatment too soon, for the disease is very liable to a return, consumption, the by this we understand a constitutional affection, characterized by a wasting away of the body, attended by the deposition of tubercular matter into the lung tissue, hence the appellations, physis pulmonalis, pulmonary tuberculosis, tubercular consumption, tubercles may form in other organs and result in a breaking down of their tissues, but the employment of the term consumption in this article is restricted to the lungs, the general prevalence, the insidious attack, and the distressing fatality of this disease demand the special attention and investigation of every thinking person. It preys upon all classes of society. Rich and poor alike furnish its victims. Some idea of its prevalence may be formed when we consider that, of the entire population of the globe, one in every 323 persons annually dies of consumption. It may not be definitely known just what proportion of all the deaths in this country and Europe occurs from this one disease. Those who have gathered statistics differ somewhat some claiming one-fourth, while others put the ratio at one-sixth, one-seventh, and even as low as one-ninth. A fair estimate, and one probably very near the truth, would be one-sixth or one-seventh of the whole number. In New York City, for five consecutive years, the proportion was three in twenty. In New England, about twenty thousand annually succumbed to this destroyer, and in the state of New York as many more. These figures may appear to be exaggerations. But investigations of the subject prove them to be the simple truth. Epidemics of cholera, yellow fever, and other diseases of similar character, so terrible in their results, occasion widespread alarm, and receive the most careful considerations for their prevention and cure. While consumption receives scarcely a thought, yet the number of their victims sinks into insignificance when compared with those of consumption, like the thief in the night, it steals upon its victim unawares, in a large proportion of cases. Its approach is so insidious that the early symptoms are almost wholly disregarded, indeed, they excite but little, if any, attention, and perhaps for a time disappear altogether, thus the patient's suspicions, if they have been aroused, are laid and appropriate measures for his relief are discontinued, this may be the case until renewed attacks firmly establish the disease, and before the patient is fully aware of the fatal tendency of his malady he is progressing rapidly towards that, born from which no traveler returns, as has already been stated, consumption is a constitutional disease, manifested by feeble vitality, loss of strength, emaciation symptoms which are too often classed under the name of general debility, until local symptoms develop, as cough, difficult breathing, or hemorrhage, when examination of the chest reveals the startling fact that tubercular deposits have been formed in the lungs, Invalids are seldom willing to believe that they have consumption, until it is so far advanced that all medicine can do is to smooth the pathway to the grave. Another characteristic of this disease is hope, which remains active until the very last, flattering the patient into expectation of recovery. To the influence of this emotion, the prolongation of the patient's life may often be attributed. Nature of the disease It is an error to suppose that the disease under consideration is confined to the lungs, Pulmonary consumption, as has been remarked, is but a fragment of a great constitutional malady, the lungs are merely the stage where it plays its most conspicuous part, every part of the system is more or less involved, every vital operation more or less deranged, especially is the nutritive function vitiated and imperfect, the circulation is also involved in the general morbid condition, tubercles, which constitute a marked feature of the disease, are composed of an organized matter deposited from the blood in the tissue of the lungs. They are small globules of a yellow, opaque, friable substance, of about the consistency of cheese. After their deposition, they are increased in size by the accretion of fresh matter of the same kind. They are characteristic of all forms of scrofulous disease. The most plausible theory in regard to them is that they are the result of imperfect nutrition. Such a substance cannot be produced in the blood when this fluid is perfectly formed. It is an unorganized particle of matter, resulting from the imperfect elaboration of the products of digestion, which is not, therefore, properly fitted for assimilation with the tissues, the system being unable to appropriate it, and powerless to cast in off through the excretory channels, deposits it in the lungs or other parts of the body, there it remains as a foreign substance, like a splinter or thorn in the flesh, until ejected by suppuration and sloughing of the surrounding parts. It might be supposed by some that when the offending matter was thus eliminated from the lungs, they would heal and the patient recover, but, unfortunately, the deposition of tubercular matter does no cease, owing to the morbid action of the vital forces. It is formed and deposited as fast or faster than it can be thrown off by expectoration. Hence arises the remarkable fatality of pulmonary consumption. Causes The causes of consumption are numerous and varied, but may all be classed under two heads. This Constitutional, or predisposing, and local, or exciting, of just what tubercular matter consists, is still a subject of controversy, but that its existence depends upon certain conditions, either congenital or acquired, is generally conceded, and one of these conditions is impaired vitality, constitutional predisposition must first give rise to conditions which will admit of the formation of tubercular matter, before any cause whatever can occasion its local deposition. It must modify the vitality of the whole system. When other causes may determine in the system thus impaired, the peculiar morbid action of which tubercular matter is the product, the general division of causes into predisposing and exciting must ever be more or less arbitrary. Individuals subject to predisposing causes may live the natural term of life and finally die of other disease. Indeed, when predisposing causes are known to exist, they should constitute a warning for the avoidance of other causes again, among the so-called exciting causes, some may operate in such a manner, with some individuals, as to predispose them to consumption, and the result will be the same as if the disposition had been congenital, the causes which in one individual are exciting, under other circumstances and in other individuals, would be predisposing, because they act so as to depress the vitality and impair the nutritive processes, the predisposing causes, then, are hereditary predisposition. Scrofula, debility of the parents, climatic influences, sedentary habits, depressing emotions, in fact, anything which impairs the vital forces and interferes with the perfect elaboration of nutritive material. The exciting causes are those which are capable of arousing the predisposing ones into activity, and which, in some instances, may themselves induce predisposition, as dyspepsia, nasal catarrh, colds, suppressed menstruation, bronchitis retrocession of cutaneous affections, measles, scarlatina, malaria, whooping cough, smallpox, continued fevers, pleurisy, pneumonia, long continued influence of cold, sudden prolonged exposure to cold, sudden suspension of long continued discharges, masturbation, excessive venery, wastes from excessive mental activity, insufficient diet, both as regards quantity and quality, exposure to impure air. Atmospheric vicissitudes, dark dwellings, dampness, prolonged lactation, depressing mental emotions, insufficient clothing, improper treatment of other diseases, exhaustive discharges, tight lacing, fast life in fashionable society, and impurity and impoverishment of blood from any cause. This list might be greatly extended, but the other causes are generally in some manner allied to those already named. Symptoms The symptoms of consumption vary with the progress of the disease. Writers generally recognize three stages, which so gradually change from one to the other that a dividing line cannot be drawn. As the disease progresses, new conditions develop, which are manifested by new symptoms, prior to the advent of pulmonary symptoms, is the latent period, which may extend over a variable length of time, from a few months to several years, and, indeed, may never be developed any farther until sufficient tubercular matter has been deposited in the lungs to alter the sounds observed on auscultation and percussion, a definite diagnosis of tubercular consumption cannot be made, even though there may have been hemorrhage, nevertheless, when we find paleness, emaciation, accelerated and difficult breathing, increased frequency of the pulse, an increase of temperature, and general debility coming on gradually without any apparent cause, We have sufficient grounds for grave suspicions. These are increased if tenderness under the collarbone. With a slight hacking cough is present. These symptoms should be sufficient to warn any individual who has the slightest reason to believe that he is disposed to consumption. To lose no time in instituting the appropriate hygienic and medical treatment. For it is at this stage that remedies will be found most effective. Unfortunately, this period is too apt to pass unheeded or receive but trifling attention. The patient finds some trivial excuse for his present condition, and believes that he will soon be well. But, alas for his anticipations, the disease goes onward and onward, gradually gaining ground, from which it will be with great difficulty dislodged. The cough now becomes sufficiently harassing to attract attention, and is generally worse in the morning. The expectoration is slight and frothy, the pulse varies from 90 to 120 beats in a minute, and sometimes even exceeds this. Flushes of heat and a burning sensation on the soles of the feet and palms of the hands are experienced. A circumscribed redness of one or both cheeks is apparent. These symptoms increase in the afternoon, and in the evening are followed by a sense of chilliness more or less severe. The appetite may be good, even voracious, but the patient remarks that his food does not seem to do him any good, and, to use a popular expression, he is going into a decline. As the strength wanes the cough becomes more and more severe. As if occasioned by a fresh cold, in which way the patient vainly tries to account for it, expectoration increases, becomes more opaque, and perhaps yellow, with occasionally slight dots or streaks of blood, the fever increases, and there is more pain and oppression of the chest, particularly during deep respiration after exercise. Palpitation is more severe. There may now be night sweats, tire patient waking in the morning to find himself drenched in perspiration. Exhausted and haggard bleeding from the lungs occurs and creates alarm and astonishment often coming on suddenly without warning the hemorrhage usually ceases spontaneously or on the administration of proper remedies and in a few days the patient feels better than he has felt for some time previously the cough is less severe and the breathing less difficult indeed a complete remission sometimes occurs and both patient and friends deceive themselves with the belief that the afflicted one is getting well. After an indefinite length of time, the symptoms return with greater severity. These remissions and aggravations may be repeated several times, each successive remission being less perfect, each recurrence more severe, carrying the patient further down the road toward the dark valley. Now the cough increases, the paroxysms become more severe, the expectoration more copious and purulent, As the tubercular deposits soften and break down, the voice is hollow and reverberating, the chest is flattened, and loses its mobility, the collarbones are prominent, with marked depression above and below. Auscultation reveals a bubbling, gurgling sound, as the air passes through the matter in the bronchi, with the click, to the air cells beyond. Percussion gives a dull sound or if there are large cavities, it is hollow, and auscultation elicits the enteric sound. As of blowing into a bottle, hectic fever is now fully established, the eye is unusually bright and pearly, with dilated pupils, which gives a peculiar expression, the paroxysms of coughing exhaust the patient, and he gasps and pants for breath, the tongue now becomes furred, the patient thirsty, the bowels constipated, and all the functions are irregularly performed, another remission may now occur, and the patient be able to resume light employment, for an indefinite length of time. Which we had known to extend over three or four years when the symptoms again return. If the patient is a female, and deranged or suppressed menstruation has not marked the accession of pulmonary symptoms, the flow now becomes profuse and clotted, or is scanty and colorless, sometimes ceasing altogether. In the male, the sexual powers diminish, and copulation is followed by excessive and long-continued prostration. From this time onward, the progress of the disease is more rapid the liver and kidneys are implicated, in addition to the pallor, the complexion becomes jaundiced, giving the patient, who is now wasting to a mere skeleton, a ghastly look, the urine is generally copious and limpid, though occasionally scanty and yellow, the pulse increases to a 130 or 140 beats in the minute, and is feeble and threadlike, the cough harasses the patient so that he does not sleep, or his rest is fitful and in refreshing, whenever sleep does occur, The patient wakes to find himself drenched with a cold, clammy perspiration, the throat, mouth, and tongue now become tender, and occasionally ulcerate. Expectration is profuse, purulent, and viscid, clinging tenaciously to the throat and mouth, and the patient no longer has strength to eject it. The hair now falls off, the nails become livid, and the breathing difficult and gasping, the patient has no longer strength to move himself in bed and has to be propped up with pillows and suffocates on assuming the recumbent position, drinks are swallowed with difficulty, diarrhea takes the place of constipation, the extremities are cold, swollen, and dropsical. the voice feeble, hollow, grating, husky, the patient gasping between each word, the respiration is short and quick, a slight remission of these symptoms occurs, the patient is more comfortable, lively, cheerful, and perhaps forms plans for the future but it is the last effort of expiring vitality the last flicker of the lamp of life the candle burns brilliantly for a moment and with one last effort goes out and death closes the scene the duration of the active stage of consumption varies from a few weeks to several years the average time being about 18 months cough is always a prominent symptom throughout the entire course of the disease varying with its progress expectoration that first scanty then slightly increased colourless frothy, and mucus, is also a characteristic, after a time it becomes opaque, yellow, and more or less watery, then mucopurulent and finally purulent, copious, and viscid, when tubercular matter is freely expectorated, with but little mucus, it sinks in water, this symptom continues to the very last, hemoptysis bleeding from the lungs may occur at any stage of the disease, often being the first pulmonary symptom noticed again being delayed until late, and there are cases in which it does not happen at all. It seldom occurs in any other disease. Night sweats may occur at any stage, though they are rarely experienced until the disease is pretty well established, and are very exhausting. Hectic fever generally occurs soon after the pulmonary symptoms are developed, and increases in intensity with the progress of the disease. There are usually two paroxysms in 24 hours one of which occurs towards evening and is followed by night sweats, dyspnoia difficult breathing is at first slight, except after exertion, amounting to only a sense of oppression, but it becomes more and more severe as the disease advances, until the very last, when it is agonizing in the extreme, of the, sometimes extending to the pharynx and larynx, generally occurs towards the last, the mouth and throat become so very sore and tender that nourishment and medicine are taken with difficulty, Emaciation and debility are characteristic of the disease. They fluctuate as the disease advances or is retarded, increasing to the very last. Auscultation and percussion constitute valuable means of diagnosis from the time tubercular matter begins to be deposited to the very last. And, when correctly practiced, reveal the extent and progress of the disease. As a knowledge of the sounds elicited can only be acquired by practical experience with proper instruments. They will not be described here. The only diseases with which consumption is likely to be confounded are general debility in the early stage, bronchitis, chronic pleurisy, chronic pneumonia, and abscess in the lungs, after the advent of pulmonary symptoms, curabiality, notwithstanding the prevailing opinion that consumption is incurable, there exists ample, incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, its curability is established beyond the shadow of a doubt. Individuals have recovered in whom there was extensive destruction of pulmonary tissue, and, indeed, entire destruction of one lung. Numerous instances are on record in which persons have suffered from all the symptoms of confirmed consumption, and have regained their health and subsequently died of other diseases. The case of the late Dr. Joseph Parrish, of Philadelphia, affords a striking example of this kind. In early life, he manifested all the symptoms of confirmed consumption. Including frequent hemorrhages, yet he fully regained his health, and, after a very full life, died at an advanced age of another disease. Post mortem examination revealed the existence of cicatrices, or scars, in his lungs where tubercular matter had been deposited. Dr. Wood, in his practice of medicine, mentions another instance of a medical gentleman in Philadelphia, who in early life suffered from consumption with hemoptyses, from which he recovered, and afterwards died. At an advanced age of typhoid fever, when the knife revealed the presence of cicatrices, post mortem examinations of individuals who have died of other diseases have revealed, in numerous instances, the presence of consumption at some period of their existence. In these cases, the lungs were perfectly healed by cicatrizopion or by the deposit of a chalky material. A French physician made post mortem examinations of 100 women, all of whom were over 60 years of age and who had died of other diseases, and in 50 of them he found evidences of the previous existence of consumption. Professor Flint says that consumption sometimes terminates in recovery, and that his observations lead him to the conclusion that the prospect of recovery is more favorable in cases characterized by frequent hemorrhages. D.R.S. Weir and Walshier are also led to the same conclusion. Professor J. Hughes Bennett, of Edinburgh, has thoroughly investigated the subject and adds his testimony to that of others, citing numerous cases that have resulted in perfect recovery. If such testimony is not sufficient, we may mention the following, whose names are well known and respected in professional circles, and all of whom declare that consumption is a curable disease. The list includes Laneek, Andrel, Cruvale-Hire, Kingston, Brazit, Rogie, Boudet, and a host of others, no farther back than 1866. On page 145, of the Proceedings of the Connecticut Medical Society, we find observations, anti-mortem and post-mortem, upon the case of the late President Day by Professor S.G. Hubbard, M.D., New Haven, from which we learn that Jeremiah Day, L.L.D., who was for 29 years president of Yale College, was, while a mere youth, a victim of pulmonary consumption, during his infancy and boyhood his vitality was feeble. He entered Yale College as a student in 1789, but was soon obliged to leave the institution on account of pulmonary difficulty, which was doubtless the incipient stage of the organic disease of the lungs which subsequently developed itself. He remained in feeble health for two years, but returned to college, and graduated in 1797. For the next six years his lung difficulties were quite severe, and he repeatedly bled in large quantities, but he had so far recovered in 1803. As to accept a professorship. He was afterwards chosen president of the college, which office he held for many years. In the enjoyment of good health, he died from old age, as we are told, in 1867, aged 94 years. Statistics show that under the improved methods of treating this disease, the mortality, as compared with previous years, has been greatly reduced. Clinical observation proves that injuries to the lungs are not so fatal as was once supposed. Treatment the earlier the treatment of this disease is undertaken, the greater is the probability of success. The reason of this is obvious, that first the disease is general or constitutional, but as it advances, by the deposit of tubercular matter, it becomes both constitutional and local. Hence the treatment must be both general and local. The occurrence of certain prominent and distressing symptoms, either from the natural progress of the disease, or from complications with other affections, often renders it difficult even for physicians, to determine how far their treatment should be general and how far local, treating the symptoms instead of the general disease, or treating the constitutional disease without regard to the symptoms which arise from it, is an error into which many physicians have fallen, the constitutional affection, the local manifestations and complications, and the circumstances and individual peculiarities of the patient, must all be carefully considered, bearing in mind all the while that tubercular matter is the product of a morbid action, which, in every case, must exist before its deposition in the lungs, or any other tissue, can take place, in every case in which curative treatment is to be instituted, the hardy and persistent company operation of both patient and friends is absolutely necessary, and the treatment, which is both hygienic and medical in character, should have in view the following aims, 1. The avoidance of the causes concerned in the production and perpetuation of the disease. 2. The restoration of healthy nutrition, in order to stop the formation of tuberculous matter. 3. the arrest of the abnormal breaking down of the tissues, and the prevention of emaciation. 4. The relief of local symptoms, and the complications arising from other diseases. The fulfillment of the first indication, the avoidance of causes, is of the utmost importance. For if they have been sufficient to produce the disease, their continued operation must certainly be sufficient to perpetuate it. A single individual is very often subjected to the operation of several of the causes already enumerated, some of which, in consequence of circumstances and surroundings, are unavoidable. Of these, the one most difficult to overcome is climate, i.e., the frequent variations of temperature. Upon the subject of climate, much has been written, but that which is best adapted to the cure of consumption, is that which will enable the patient to pass a certain number of hours every day in the pure open air, without exposure to sudden alterations of temperature. There are very few persons who change their place of residence, except as a last resort. When the disease is in the last stage, it is then productive of little or no good. This is one reason why so many people having consumption die in Florida, and other warm countries. If the change of climate is to be affected at all, it should be made early. The most powerful stimulant to health is well-regulated exercise, it assists the performance of every function, and is of paramount importance to promote good digestion and proper assimilation, conditions essential for recovery, it should not, however, be carried beyond the powers of endurance of the individual.